You can open your Bibles to John chapter 17. And over the last several weeks, we have looked at the farewell discourse, the final instruction that Jesus was going to give to his disciples on the eve of his departure in preparation for his leaving and also in preparation for the apostolic ministry that they would begin in just around 40 days. And so we've been looking in chapter 17 at the high priestly prayer. And this is called by many commentators the real Lord's Prayer. We often recite, Our Father who art in heaven, how would be thy name? And we say that's the Lord's Prayer. But in fact, that is the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Here we have the longest recorded prayer by Jesus in the New Testament. We know that Jesus spent many, many episodes and times away from the disciples, away from the crowds, praying to the Father. And this is one of the few that we have recorded for us. And it gives us such an insight into the heart of the Lord Himself. It is in many respects a summarization of the farewell discourse. And as we've looked at in the weeks past, Jesus prayed concerning Himself that He would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified through Him, and we know that that glorification takes place through the cross. His death on the cross and the subsequent resurrection would bring glory to the Father. And this glory is accomplished primarily through His completing the Father's eternal plan of redemption, which was established before the foundation of the world. Before there ever was a man, before there ever was a need, God had already determined how He would make a provision for those that He would call to Himself. Now in our section today, which is the second section in this high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for His disciples. And as we looked at last week, He is basing this prayer upon the ownership that the Father has over these individuals that the Father has given to Jesus to shepherd and to care for. Although the section that we're looking at today specifically applies on these 11 individuals, it can still be generally applied to all believers. This was not an exclusionary prayer to just these 11 men. We'll see similar prayer, similarities in the prayer that is prayed for those who would believe through the word of the disciples in the coming weeks. But this prayer is based upon the fact that the Father has chosen these individuals, and our choosing isn't any different than theirs, except that we have a different purpose in our lives. None of us have been called to execute an apostolic ministry, but you and I have been called to serve the Lord in our, in our little corner of the world, to live a life that reflects who He is, to verbally share the truth of the Gospel message, and to be used by God to help bring others into a saving relationship with Him. Now in verse 6, Jesus affirms that these men were given to Him by the Father, and He affirms that they have remained faithful to the revelation that Jesus has given to them through His earthly ministry. They've been with Him for three and a half years. They've heard all of His teaching. They've seen all of His miracles. They've they've been with Him day in and day out, and they believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be, that He was sent by the Father on a divine mission. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus affirms that everything the Father has given to Jesus... Jesus has given to them. He's done this through His teaching. 
He's done this through His shepherding. He's done this through His explanations. He's done this through the modeling of the life that He has lived. They have received this revelation and they have believed and are sure that Jesus is the Messiah. In verses 9-11, through Jesus brings His request on behalf of these men because of their belief in Him and because He is about to leave them as He departs back to His previous place of glory with the Father. So in our section today, we'll see specifically what Jesus is going to pray for these individual men who have been called to this very unique ministry. And by extension, we can also say that He is praying similarly for us today. Let's look together in John chapter 17. We're only going to make it from verse 11b, the second half of verse 11 to 13. And we'll, com- we'll complete this section on what Jesus prays for the disciples next week. I didn't want to be up here for an hour and ten minutes, so you can thank me for that much later. But here's what our passage of Scripture says today. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. It's a part of the basis for why Jesus is bringing these requests to the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We'll pick up the other half of what Jesus prays for the disciples next week. So in these verses... We get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus, what it is that He's concerned about as He is about to leave this world and as these individuals who have put all of their life in Christ are now going to be faced with the reality of living their lives without His physical presence. Now it's important to remember that what Jesus prays for these men isn't to to be considered the impossible. But these are His specific desires for them. What Jesus prays is in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. And so these requests should be the pursuit of every believer. I am convinced that oftentimes we read things in the Bible and we hear those words and we say, well, yeah, that's probably for them, but that would be impossible for me. Or Jesus expects that of this group of people, but He knows that I could never do that in my life. And I want to tell you that that is nothing more than baloney. What Jesus prays for these individuals is not a prayer of the impossible. It is a prayer of the normal expectation for the disciples and subsequently for those who are going to believe through the word of the disciples. So, one singular point with many pieces of application. Number one, Jesus prays for His disciples. The beginning part of verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. This is a continuation of what we looked at briefly last week. Because Jesus is leaving them, and because they are going to be in the world without His physical presence, Jesus prays for them. Now remember, Jesus has told them that He is going to send to them the Helper who will guide them into all truth and bring back to the remembrance all that He has said and that they are to love one another as He has loved them. And oh yeah, by the way, the world is going to hate you. 
The world is going to despise these men. And so Jesus is praying for them out of this stark reality that is about to be theirs in just a few short hours when they see Jesus go on trial, when they see Him led up on the cross at Calvary, when they see His lifeless body put into the tomb, they are going to be distraught until the morning of the resurrection. Even at the resurrection, they still have such an incomplete picture of what God's plan is. And so out of this heartfelt love for these men, Jesus is praying for them. Think about this for just a second. Jesus, the one and only, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, prays to the Father on behalf of these disciples. Not only does Jesus pray for these disciples, but the Bible tells us that He is our intercessor. That He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf. He goes before the Father to present His requests on our behalf. Even though we enjoy direct access to God, and even though the Spirit intercedes for us in words that we can't possibly understand, Jesus Himself also prays for us. The writer of Hebrews says this in 7.25, Therefore He, Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Even now, in the struggles that you and I face, when we feel like we are up against it and we are alone and we don't see a way, Jesus is praying for us. Does that make any difference to you? Does that encourage you? Does that comfort you? Does that bring you any source of hope? That in spite of all that you face, in spite of the dark reality that you find yourself in, Jesus Himself is praying for you. As children of the Father, as the bride of Christ, as His brothers and sisters in Christ, He prays for us. What a blessed reality that every believer should celebrate all the days of their lives that the Son of God prays for me. So Jesus prays for His disciples. And number one, He prays for their spiritual protection. This was a much more difficult passage of Scripture to outline than I anticipated. You can read through this and say, yeah, one, two, three, four. It doesn't really flow like that because this means something very different from what it appears on the surface. Second part of verse 11 says, And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name of which you have given me. Now the address here, Holy Father, is a title for God that appears only here. I believe there's more than a coincidence. There is this unique title given to God by Jesus in the midst of this high priestly prayer. And I believe that this title given to God sets the stage for the requests that Jesus is going to make throughout the remainder of this passage. The requests that he makes are based upon the holy character of God and the requests are intended for the holy character of God to be accurately reflected through the lives of his disciples. Jesus in his subservient role as the second person of the Trinity, as the Lamb of God, appeals to the holy character of God 
and the prayers that He is going to make are so that you and I and these eleven men can reflect the holy character of God in our lives. He says specifically, keep them in your name. That word keep means to preserve. These eleven men are already in His name and Jesus is asking that the Father preserve them being kept in your name. This is a request for spiritual preservation that the Father would preserve their faithful, loyal devotion. They have displayed a loyal devotion to Jesus from the beginning of His ministry. Although they misunderstood an awful lot, and although they executed their commitment imperfectly, they remained faithful to Christ through it all. In fact, Peter, who would speak on behalf of the disciples, overestimated his loyalty and his devotion by saying, I will die with you. If I'm the only one to stand with you, I will die. Well, I think he had all the right intentions and he believed with all his heart, but he executed that imperfectly. He didn't wander away. He didn't walk away from his faith. He didn't abandon the Lord. He just struggled with the reality of what Jesus was going through, not fully understanding the purpose behind it. So their devotion to Jesus is based upon what He has revealed to them about the Father. You know, we studied the Gospel of John for many, many months. I think this is around the 60th message that I preached in the Gospel of John, and we're still in chapter 17. And all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus continues to say the same thing over and over and over again. I come from the Father. I speak on behalf of the Father. I do what the Father tells me. I obey the Father. I follow His lead. Everything about Jesus' life is to be a reflection of the Father that has sent Him. New Testament writers say He is the exact representation of the Father. So what Jesus has revealed to these eleven men and to the mass of humanity that encountered Him in His three and a half year ministry is the exact reflection of the Holy Father that He is making this appeal to. He says, keep them in your name, the name which you have given Me. So Jesus has revealed the holy character and the holy nature of God the Father through His life and through His ministry. He has done this perfectly. He has reflected the holy nature and the holy character of God perfectly. So much so that they are absolutely convinced that He has been sent by the Father, that He is on a divine mission, They misunderstand that He is going to come and establish His earthly kingdom as the Messiah, not understanding that Jesus is coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. But they believe that He is on this divine mission, and therefore they are completely committed to Him because of the self-revelation of Jesus as it relates to who the Father is. Jesus is praying that the Father would preserve their commitment to the revelation that Jesus has shown them when in just a few short hours He is going to be gone. I think about this 
You know, when you're at home with your kids, there's a certain expectation about behavior, right? Because mom and dad are in the house. But what happens when mom and dad leave? Well, you know, it can change based upon what we think and what we want. And so Jesus recognizes that He is going to be gone. He has seen their faithful and loyal devotion to Him. And He's simply praying to the Holy Father that He would preserve their faithful commitment to the revelation of the Father through the life and the ministry of Jesus. So He prays for their spiritual protection. Letter A, this is expressed in unity. One of the ways that they will demonstrate the preservation of their faithful, loyal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is through their, through their, their unity. Latter part of verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. The purpose in making this request for spiritual preservation is expressed in their being unified. So the standard of unity is the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Not unity as we think of it. Not unity as we have experienced it. Not even unity as we might desire it. But unity as it exists between the Father and the Son. So how would we describe the unity that exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity? Well, we believe that there is one God who exists as three distinct divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are consubstantial, co-eternal, and co-equal. Which means what you hear and see in the Father, you would hear and see in the Son, and you would hear and see in the Spirit. There is no distinction. There is no difference. There is no division. What the Father says, the Son says. What the Father says, the Spirit says. There is absolute, complete, perfect harmony in the unity that exists within the Trinity. While each divine person has a particular role and function all three work together in perfect harmony. Here's the real question. How are Christians to reflect this unity? Well, you and I, when we come to Christ, at the moment of our salvation, His divine nature has been impugned to us and we become the very righteousness of Christ. This is an invisible unity that binds the family of God together for all of eternity. I wasn't there when you were saved. I don't know the circumstances that cause you to give your life to Christ. I don't know any of the details about that, but here's what I know. When you came to Christ, you came to the same Christ that I did. When you were saved by Christ, you were saved by the same Christ that I was. You were washed in the same blood. You were sealed by the same Spirit. You were given the same assurance of your eternal destiny. And we are invisibly linked together as the universal family of God at the moment of our salvation. But Jesus isn't praying about this invisible unity that exists in our spiritual position. He's praying for the visible unity that is to exist within the family of God. And that is something that must be protected. If you and I were able to experience 
and our earthly lives the perfection of our invisible unity without any struggle, without any of the power of sin interfering, without the presence of sin deceiving and distorting, it would be unnecessary for Jesus to even make this request. But because you and I cannot create unity, because unity is going to be a continual problem for the people of God, Jesus prays that the Father would preserve their loyal devotion to Him expressed in our unity as the family of God. Our unity needs to be protected. Our differences have the capacity to create division. Let me say that again. Our differences have the capacity to create division. Think about this within Protestant religious circles. Is there absolute harmony within all the different denominations that are under the umbrella of evangelical Christianity? Absolutely not. We have some of a charismatic persuasion and some of a non-charismatic persuasion and they don't get along at all. You have some who believe in the doctrine of election and you have some who believe in the free will of man and they don't get along at all. You have some who believe in a pre-trib rapture. You have some who don't believe in that and they don't get along at all. Even if all the doctrines align together, some will say, I think we should sing those songs. I don't think we should sing these at all. Some would say, I think we should meet at that time, not at this time. Some would say, I think we should invest in that ministry and not that not this ministry. So even within a body of believers who believe the exact same doctrines, there runs the very likelihood that we will not be unified in all of these things. Think about this in our political world. Have we ever seen the United States more divided than it is today based upon politics? You have Christians who disagree about political ideology and they can't get along at all. You have cultural differences where people say, I can't believe you would do such a thing. I don't think you're really a Christian. And they don't get along. You talk about the ethnic backgrounds, the differences in color, the differences that exist have the capacity to create the vision within the body of Christ. Unity within the family of God and the local body of believers is a huge issue. And this is why Jesus is praying that God would preserve them and their loyal devotion to Him. Even the disciples would have to deal with the issues of unity when the Gospel was exploding within the Gentile community. Do you remember when we were studying the Gospel of John? The absolute hatred that existed between Jews and Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles. They not only didn't get along, they despised one another. So much so that when they were walking down the street, they would cross the side of the street because they didn't even want to pass one another along the roadway. So these Jewish believers were prejudiced against Gentile believers and vice versa. And this is why in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives this vision from God where God lowers this sheet from heaven and it has all of these unclean foods on it and God tells Peter, take and eat. Peter says, oh, no, no. I can never do such a thing. No unclean thing has ever entered into my mouth. And at the same time, God is appearing to Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, and he tells Cornelius, 
Call for such and such a man, Simon, and ask him to come to your house. And lo and behold, Peter shows up and Cornelius tells him of all the vision of God. And here's the result of this. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. Why was it necessary for God to awaken Peter to this reality? Because the vast majority of believers over the course of history were going to be of a Gentile persuasion. Had God not made that revelation to Peter, there would have continued to be this unwillingness to share the Gospel with the Gentiles, much like, Nineveh, much like Jonah, who was unwilling to go to the Ninevites because he hated them and didn't think they were deserving of God's mercy. So the Gentiles would not be recipients of the Gospel And if they did receive the Gospel, the Jews would look down upon them as second-class believers. And so God did what was necessary to break down the walls of prejudice that existed between Jews and non-Jews because unity is crucial within the family of God. Here's what you and I need to know. Unity is provided, is produced by the Holy Spirit. This invisible unity that you and I can say exists within the family of God the Holy Spirit has already created the capacity for you and I to experience that same kind of unity. This is why the instruction in Ephesians goes like this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, the Holy Spirit has already created unity for you and I to experience. We have to preserve what God has already created. And Ephesians tells us how we can help to do that. Being humble, being gentle, being patient, showing tolerance, and love. Unity produces a love for the Lord. A unifying love for the Lord. There's a reason the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. God's love covers our sins. Our love for one another, our love for God, ought to cover the sins that are committed against us. 1 John 4.19 We love, we love God, we love others, because He first loved us. So unity produces a common love for the Lord. Unity produces a commitment to His Word. You and I ought to have a shared commitment to the truth of God's Word, to the power of God's Word, and being willing to be submissive to God's Word so that it has its rightful place in our lives and changes us and conforms us into the image of His Son. Jesus would say in John 14, 23 and 24, If anyone loves Me, He will keep My Word, and My Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. He who does not love Me does not keep My Word. You see, you and I 
are expected to have a common love for God that helps preserve our loyal, faithful devotion to Him. Unity provides an affection for God's people. You know, this is probably the most difficult part of unity. And I've heard this said on more than one occasion. Well, the Bible tells me i got to love them, but that doesn't mean i got to like them. You see, you and I are different. Different backgrounds, different environments, different upbringings, different circumstances, different experiences, different personalities, different temperaments, different likes, different interests. We're different in so many ways. These differences have the capacity to create division within the body. Have you ever heard those silly stories told where a church split because they couldn't agree on the color of carpet? Have you ever heard the silly story where a church split because they couldn't agree on the color of the new choir robes? That takes place on a far more regular occurrence than you and I can even begin to imagine. But unity produces an affection for God's people. John 15.12 This is My commandment that you love one another. How? What's the model? What's the standard of our love? Just as I have loved you. You know, you can look at that and you can begin to say, what does that really mean? Certainly God doesn't mean this, this, or this. Certainly God doesn't expect this, that, or the other. Certainly there's an exception for this really difficult person to love. Isn't there an exception? Isn't there an asterisk? Isn't there some kind of addendum that I can go and look at that excludes me from loving this person that's so different from me? Here's what you do. Take some magic marker and just scratch through that verse and say, God never said that. Can you do that? Can we arbitrarily pick and choose what is and isn't true? Can we decide for ourselves what the Word means when it's so clearly portrayed that we are to love one another as I have loved you? I can guarantee you that these 11 men who are hearing Jesus pray this prayer, while most of them are from the same region and likely have the same occupation of fishermen, were very, very different from one another. And I can assure you that their love for one another preserved the unity that God provided for them. Unity produces separation from all that is ungodly and worldly. I believe this is one of the great benefits from the body of believers gathering together for worship and teaching and fellowship is that we can help one another separate from the things in the world that God has said is sin, you are to flee from, you are to have no part in those things. And so we come together, iron sharpens iron, we strengthen one another in our resolve to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I had a friend at one of the churches I was on staff at. 
He was a fairly young guy. He was very, very successful in his job, was making lots and lots of money, more than he could ever hope to spend, and his family life was just an absolute turmoil. And so out of that distress, he and I began to meet. We began to have these conversations. And so I asked him very clearly. I said, let me ask you, how much is enough? How much is really going to satisfy you? I don't know. He was a builder, and he built high-dollar houses. And I said, so how many houses would you need to build a year in order to provide for your family in a very comfortable way? How many would you need to build? He thought for a second. He said, you may be eight or ten. And I said, so how many houses do you currently have underway and plan for the remainder of this year? He said, I think it's around 25 or 26. I said, are you ever going to be able to get that done? He says, no, I'm always behind. I can't find enough contractors. And I said, this is a love for the things of the world. Why is this your priority? He says, you know, my father always told me, get all you can while you can. And that was his mantra. That was his philosophy. That what, that's what drove his life and it drove it in such a way that everything that he said was near and dear to him was falling apart. Praise the Lord, he began to think about this and listen to this and he began to talk about this and he radically changed his schedule and his, his priorities and his life was greatly blessed and improved through that. Our love for the world is sometimes hidden to us. And it takes our bond of unity to say, well, you know, to me, that sounds like that's not really the most important thing for you. And what do we hear in the world today? That's your truth, not my truth. Keep your truth to yourself. Let me live my life the way I want to live it. You live your life your way. I'm not going to bother you. Please don't bother me. Is that healthy? Is that wise? Is that beneficial? We need to help one another and unity that we have as the body of Christ is to help produce these things in our lives that the Father desires. So the invisible unity that exists within the family of God through our salvation, this invisible unity that is ours through our salvation is to become a visible unity that crosses all organizational lines and produces an effective gospel message and testimony to the lost. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what happens when the body of Christ does not love one another in this way? Do you think the world is blind to that? Do you think the people in the workforce here, Christians, belittling, complaining against, ridiculing other Christians? What does that say about our salvation? What does that say about the reality that you and I are invisibly unified in our salvation? Lot to repent from, lot to deal with as we think about what it means to be unified within the body of Christ. So the kind of unity that Jesus prays for is the kind of unity that He has provided for them during His earthly ministry. He says in first part of verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name, which You have given Me, and I guarded them, 
and not one of them perished. The very role that He provided for these disciples is what Jesus is now praying that the Holy Father would do for them. In His physical absence, the Father, according to His holy character, so they would reflect this holy character, that the Father would provide this this benefit to them, that He would keep them unified in a way that would reflect the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Now, of course, Jesus has talked about the work of the Helper, that He was going to come to them. He was going to empower them, equip them, encourage them, enable them to bear fruit. But in this temporary subordinate role, He prays for this provision for His disciples. But there is an exception here, isn't there? And He says that none of His men perished, verse 12 continues, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Judas' fate is a picture of what a lack of unity looks like. Judas did not belong to this invisible unity that existed between Jesus and the disciples. He was a pretender. He was not a true disciple. He was not saved. He was not a part of God's family. He did not share in the love of God or the love of God's family. He had no desire in God's purposes. And he wasn't present during the time of this prayer. Judas is called the son of perdition or the son destined to perish. His defection was not a failure on Jesus' part to keep him safe, but it was Judas, but Judas' demise was for the very fulfillment of Scripture. I was shocked as a young Christian going to a Baptist Christian college to hear a quote unquote New Testament professor say, I am encouraged by the fact that Jesus was at least eight percent wrong in his choice of disciple. As if Jesus didn't know. As if Jesus was just picking people at random. But Scripture says that this individual was going to turn away. We looked at this back. I didn't quote the verse. We looked at this back in the psalm. I think it's Psalm 41.9 where David is talking about his friend who has lifted up his heel against him. This friend who shared bread with David. And that is likely the application that Jesus made as he talks about Judas and his betrayal. Judas' intent, which was prompted by Satan, was used by God to accomplish his own divine purpose. Judas is a picture of what a lack of unity looks like. Jesus is praying that the Father would preserve this loyal commitment to the Father as they have lived out in Jesus' earthly ministry. So that was letter A that he prayed for their unity. Letter B, this is demonstrated by joy. Our unity, invisible and visible, is to be demonstrated by joy. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, Jesus had tremendous joy. Right? He had tremendous joy in His union with the Father, but He also had tremendous joy because He was about to go home. Even though the doorway to Jesus going home was through the cross, Jesus still prayed that they would have His joy. Isn't it a shock to be reminded that Jesus had the fullness of joy even on the eve of His death? While He was still with them, He again prayed for their joy, but not just for joy, 
but that they would have his joy. This is the third time in the farewell discourse and in this prayer that the subject of joy has been addressed. As Jesus told them of his imminent departure and the coming of the Helper, he said in John 15:11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It was to their advantage that Jesus was going to go away because when he went away, the Helper was going to come and they would be able to have his joy to the full. As he told them of the provision that the Father would make when they prayed to him, he said in John 16, 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And now as Jesus prays, he again brings up the subject of joy. So in the context of spiritual protection that Jesus is praying for, it is clear that joy is to be understood as a byproduct of our union with God, of our walk with God, and of our union with our spiritual family. Make no mistake, a big part of our spiritual battle, which we're going to talk more about next week, is maintaining joy in our union with Christ while going through the grinder of life. You and I can have joy when life is just turning and cranking and squeezing and making it really, really hard. We can have His joy to the full. Do you believe that's true? You know, there's so many that believe that's just some kind of a psychological crutch where you're just supposed to be strong and pull up your bootstraps and keep your chin up because, you know, joy... Got to have joy. Joy is a byproduct of our union with Him, which is eternal, and our union within the family of God. Joy, in the way of review, is inner gladness. It is a deep-seated pleasure. It is a cheerful heart that leads to a cheerful life. Very quickly, three elements of the believer's joy. And this is something we've already talked about. In fact, it's coming right out of a message I preached when I was in John 15. Joy is not dependent. Joy is not dependent on health or job or family or the election or the economy or anything else. That is happiness. Happiness depends upon what is happening. But the joy that God provides overrides all that is happening even in the most difficult circumstances we might find ourselves in. Secondly, joy is divine. It is possessed by God and it is given to us by God. Its roots are not in material things, but in the person and in the work of Christ. Joy isn't something that we can produce in ourselves. It is a byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why in Galatians 5 it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? It is what the Helper produces in us as we remain attached to the source of our spiritual life. Like a rose that gets cut from the bush, in just a few days it will begin to wither and dry up, so too will we when we are disconnected from the source of life. We will not possess the spiritual joy that God makes available to us. Thirdly, joy is hopeful. 
We know that God is always at work. We know that He is working things out for the good of those who love Him and those that are called according to His purposes. We know that God has a divine plan for all that He allows in our life, even though we didn't ask for it, even though we don't like it, even though we hope it ends really, really fast. We know that this life is not the end-all and the be-all for us. This is a training ground where our spiritual character is revealed to us in the grinder of life so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son and reflect the holy nature and the holy character of God. There is an eternal future that awaits us and that should fill our hearts and our minds with incredible joy. We close with this. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Do you love Him? And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, do you believe in Him? You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you greatly rejoice? Do you rejoice with inexpressible joy that is filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls? I don't ever, ever, ever want to minimize the difficulties that we face. When you get a really bad report from the doctor, it's serious. But that does not determine your joy. When all that is around you seems gloomy and hopeless, that does not define your joy. What defines our joy is our eternal union with Christ. So Jesus prays for our spiritual protection. He prays for the preservation of our commitment to Him, which is expressed through unity in the family and is demonstrated by joy. Joy in Him. Joy given by Him. Joy in our hope of an eternity with Him. We'll continue to look at what Jesus prays in the remaining passages of this second section. But as you think about these things that we've looked at, as we think about Jesus' prayer for us, that the Father would preserve our faithful and loyal devotion to Him, expressed in our unity, demonstrated by our joy. What does God say to you in the moment? What does God expose that is not submissive to His sovereign rule over our lives? Father, we come to You as the Holy Father thanking You for the work that You have done for us on the cross through Christ. Father, we, uh, we know so much theoretically about that. And we have a, a lot of intellectual agreement with so much of the Bible. But oftentimes in our experience, we fall woefully short of appropriating in our lives all that you made available to us. We're not perfect. We're not robotic. But Father, I pray that you would continue to grow our faith in you, our commitment to you, our acknowledgement of your absolute sufficiency for all that we lack and all that we desire. And that we as your children would take you at your word. That we would pray your word. That we would fight the spiritual battle that disrupts our unity and our joy. 
And I pray that through all the trials and all the fire of life that we would come out more refined, more reflective of your goodness and your glory, willing to serve you in any way that we can because we love you. Father, I pray that our heart's desire is for you and you alone as we think back on your faithfulness and your goodness towards us. God, would you help us to desire to want to go deeper with you in every facet of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.